0: continue our study of His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we come together now to worship You, having heard so much truth this morning in Sunday school about the attributes of God and the way You relate to Your creatures and the triunity of God, having heard truth read to us from Psalm 72, a call for the nations to bow down and worship the King, having heard truth even in 1 Corinthians 11, much of it Centering on the Lord's Supper and the sacrifice our Savior made on our behalf to bear your wrath and to save us from our sin. We're just so amazed, Lord, that you have prepared such a feast for our souls. And now as we come to our text this morning, as we consider the glories of your word, as we consider the glories of our Savior, we pray that the Spirit of God would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear the truth, to know the truth, to love the truth. And that you would use the truth to make us more like our Savior. We pray these things for His glory. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break from our study in 1 John this morning. As you know, I have in the past preached some pretty notorious holiday messages. Last Easter, I preached a message on circumcision. And uh, this last Thanksgiving, I preached a message on the Antichrist. So, as I was sitting in my study and wondering what uh, topic, what notorious topic I would preach on for Christmas, uh, nothing really came to mind. Uh, In fact, I had a revelation, if you will, as I was sitting there. I could have preached on head coverings. that would have been an interesting Christmas message. But uh, I decided that I'm going to break my trend. You know, I usually abhor trends. I don't like cultural trends. I don't like, you know, following what everyone else does and... But uh, that's just the rebel in me, so today I'm going to break away from that. I'm going to cave and give in to the holiday tradition and give you a Christmas message. The Christmas message that I did promise you last year, so it's only fair that I do that. So that's what we're going to do. That's the plan this morning. We're going to consider the glories of Christmas, and we're going to do it this morning in a passage that perhaps isn't one of the first that would come to your mind when you think about the Christmas story, and that is in Galatians chapter 4. Let me read this passage to you. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. But our focus will be verses 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, "...born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God." The verses, again, I want to focus on is verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. When you think about Christmas, what comes to your mind? What do you think about when you hear the word Christmas? Perhaps you think of Christmas trees and presents and decorations. Maybe you think of festive movies, hallmark movies, things like that. Maybe you think of nativity scenes and family time. Maybe you think of long lines at the store and shopping and giving away presents and caring and giving. For others, it's snowmen and... Santa Claus and reindeer and all of the Christmas festivities. But what comes to your mind? Hopefully what comes to your mind is what we know should come to our minds, and that's what Christmas is ultimately about. We know what it's about, right? We know what it's about. It's about the birth of our Savior. It's about the coming of our Lord Jesus into the world. That's what nativity scenes are all about, about the birth of Christ. We think of a baby. We think of a manger. We think of Joseph. We think of Mary. We think of the angels, the shepherds, the wise men. That's the historical Christmas story. And I think that's pretty common knowledge. Most people realize that Christmas is a time at which we celebrate the birth of Jesus. However, I'm not sure if people really understand the message behind that. They get the history of Christmas, but do they get the theology of Christmas? They understand that Christ came as a baby, but do they understand why he came into the world? For many, I don't think they like the idea of Jesus growing up. They like the idea of a cute baby in a manger, not a sovereign king on a throne. They like the idea of the shepherds and the, and the story of Christmas, but they don't like the idea of this sovereign king who's going to judge the nations and dash his enemies to pieces. But we have to take into account the whole of Revelation, and Christmas cannot be separated from the purpose for which Jesus came into the world. So we have to move beyond the history of the birth of Christ to the theology behind it, the purpose behind it, the meaning behind it, the reality that is Christmas. We need to understand the glory of Christmas. If we miss the glory of Christmas and we reduce it to a baby, if we reduce it to a manger, if we reduce it to Christmas presents, if we reduce it to holiday and lots of food, and I love those things, I love lots of food. If you know me, you know that well. But if we just reduce Christmas to that, It's an empty, shallow Christmas. We missed the point. It's all hopeless. So what is the message of Christmas? What is Christmas ultimately about? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? What is the reality of Christmas? I think Paul answers those questions for us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And this morning, I just want to make three simple points, okay? Three simple points. I want you to notice the timing of Christmas. I want you to notice the message of Christmas And I want you to notice the purpose of Christmas, the timing of Christmas, the message of Christmas, and the purpose of Christmas. So first notice the timing of Christmas. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. So what's the timing of Christmas? Well, obviously we celebrate it in December, and even more specifically, December 25th. (laughs) Even though scholars agree that Jesus probably wasn't born in December, maybe September or October, they think. But regardless, the timing of Christmas, according to this verse, most importantly, is said to be when the fullness of the time came. That is to say, at the very moment God chose, Christ came into the world. Christmas is according to God's perfect timing. As you know, uh, this all has a context. Galatians 4 can't be separated from Galatians chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 3, and so on. That's why we ordinarily work through books of the Bible verse by verse. Context is important. So let me kind of set the context for you here. You Go to verse, chapter 3, verse 26. Paul is talking about the reality that Christians have become children of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 26. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. In other words, you're the true Jews. You're the true people of God, the Israel of God, the children of God. That's who you are by virtue of your union with and faith in Jesus Christ. You're the children of God. And picking up on that theme of Christian sonship, a theme we're going to consider in detail in a few weeks in 1 John, picking up on that theme, he begins in chapter 4 to describe our sonship in relation to the law of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say, As long as the heir is a child and does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In other words, a child is no different from a slave because a slave wouldn't receive an inheritance. The child is a young child, though he was rightful heir to the inheritance, yet he did not fully possess it yet as a child. So in that sense, he was no different than a slave. He would eventually receive the inheritance when he came of age at the time set by the father. Then Paul uses this metaphor and he applies it to our salvation. Look at verse 3. <laughs> so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We were in bondage when we were children. What does that mean? It's got a historical reality to it and a personal reality. You see, historically, in the old covenant, the old dispensation, the people of God, Israel, was they were like children. They were shut up to the full new covenant revelation of their salvation. They were saved by grace through faith. They had the gospel in shadows and types and promises, but they didn't have the fullness of that revelation of their salvation. They were under the ceremonial law and bondage to that ceremonial law. So they were like children shut up to the fullness of their inheritance until the time set by the Father. At the moment that the Father chose, Christ came, the new covenant was inaugurated. They were freed from the bondage of the ceremonial law, and it's as if they've received now the fullness of their new covenant, salvation. But the same is true not just for Old Covenant people of God into the New Covenant. It's even true personally for us. Because prior to our salvation, we were like children in the sense that we were shut up to the fullness of our salvation. We hadn't received Christ. We were not justified by faith. But then when Christ came into our hearts effectually by grace, we received that salvation. And it's as if we came of age. And so that's what Paul is saying here. It's as if we've come of age. That's the historical and personal application. But all of this, Paul says, is at the time set by the Father. The child would receive the inheritance at the time set by the Father, perhaps at his bar mitzvah uh, or whenever the time had come that the Father had established. So with that context, now back to verse 4, Paul says, but when the fullness of the time came, that is to say at the very moment in human history that God the Father chose, Christ came into the world. He was born according to a sovereign and divine timetable you know scripture often makes that point that everything in the life and ministry and death of christ was orchestrated by god predetermined by god before the world ever began and was on a perfectly timed out scale a schedule over and over again in the gospels jesus says things like my time has not yet come my hour has not yet come in romans chapter 5 verse 5 paul says at the right time Christ died for the ungodly at the right time, at the very moment that God chose, Christ came into the world and accomplished the salvation of his people. So John MacArthur is right when he says Christmas really began before the baby, before the manger, before uh, the birth in Bethlehem. Christmas really began in the mind of God from eternity. God had planned to send forth his son for the world ever began. He orchestrated all the events of human history, every detail, every molecule in the universe to bring about his perfect plan at the very moment he deemed was the right time. And this was the right time for many reasons. Uh, that part of the world in first century Roman Empire had been Hellenized. That is to say, it had been influenced by Greek culture, Greek language. There was a common language everyone spoke for the most part. So it would have been pretty simple for the Christians to communicate in this language spread the gospel. This was during the time of the Pax Romana. It's a 200-year period of peace in the Roman Empire where the Christians could travel and preach and the gospel could go forth. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident. God ordained the very moment of the first Christmas for a a perfect reason at the perfect time. This timing was perfect. It was the fullness of the time, and it was the timing of the first Christmas. So that's the timing. But secondly, notice... Notice the message of Christmas. We're going to consider the heart of this message. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. That's what Christmas is about, right? That's what we celebrate. God, the Father, at the very moment he chose, sent forth his Son. Christ is the Son of God. Not like angels who are created beings, not like men and saints who are adopted as the children of God. Jesus is the Son of God by nature. Jesus shares the essence of the Father, is eternally begotten of the Father. He's the eternal Son of God, and God sent him into the world. How did he do that? How did God send him into the world? Verse 4 says, by being born of a woman. Being born of a woman. This right here is the heart of of Christmas. This is the wonder of Christmas. This is the glory of Christmas. This is the majesty of Christmas that God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, would come into the world as a man via the incarnation, via the virgin birth. It's astonishing. If Christmas to you is astonishing because of a guy in a red suit who flies around and delivers presents, you're missing it. There's something much more glorious than that. The glory Is Christ is God in human flesh. The glory of Christmas is bound up in the words of John. The Word became flesh. That is the wonder of Christmas. The God, man, is born of a woman. And this this reality is something that's promised all throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 3.15, what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the first promise of the gospel. God tells the man and the woman and the serpent as he's pronouncing curses in the garden, says that in the seed of the woman, the serpent's head would be crushed, the skull crushing seed of the woman. We know when that was fulfilled, when Jesus came, he died, he arose, and he crushed the serpent's head and delivered God's people from the curse. Christmas is there. Christmas is implicitly and insipidly there in Genesis 3:15. If you think about Christmas, the first place perhaps you should go to in the Bible is right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's amazing. You have God establish a man and a woman out of dirt from the ground. He enters into covenant relationship with them. He is gracious to them, condescends, is in communion with them, and Adam and Eve revolt. Rebel, break his law, violate the covenant, incur judgment. And in the midst of that judgment being pronounced, God promises there will be a deliverer who's going to come through the woman. What should have happened that day that Adam and Eve sinned? What did they deserve? Die. The day you eat off the tree, you shall surely die. And it's certainly true they did. They died spiritually, but they were worthy of eternal damnation right there. But God is gracious. He says, you're going to have a seed. The woman's going to have a seed, a, a multiplicity of descendants. And one of those descendants is going to crush the serpent and deliver the people of God. That's the glory of Christmas. Then it just keeps going. In Genesis 22:18, 18, God told Abraham, in your seed, the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Amazing. The seed who brings universal blessing and salvation to the people of God, is the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel 7 then affirms that this seed is going to come through David, that one of David's descendants is going to be raised up, seated on the throne of David forever and reign supremely. Isaiah 7.14 predicted that it would be through a virgin that this seed would come, that this Savior, Messiah, would come. Isaiah 9 tells us that he's going to be the God-man upon whom, on whose shoulders the government will rest. Listen to what Isaiah says about Messiah in chapter 9. He says, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's the Messiah. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God becoming a human being. God, the one on whose shoulders the government will rest. The very one who's going to reign supremely came as a man. It's hard to fathom, isn't it? That the eternal king of glory would be a baby in Bethlehem, a poor Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, despised and rejected, but that is the wonder of Christmas. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, also recorded this promise. The Lord declared to the prophet, As for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up and so the time when she who is in labor has born a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. This champion, this Messiah, this ruler, this seed of the woman is from eternity, but is going to be born as a child and come to deliver his people. An amazing, amazing reality. Of course, the Gospels give us the most elaborate account of the first Christmas. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew Chapter 1. Obviously, we could go to several places in the Gospels and read about what we could call the first Christmas. Luke records it in very much detail. John, as we'll look at in a minute, gives us the divine perspective on Christmas from the divine side. Mark skips Christmas, just jumps right into Jesus' ministry. But Matthew gives uh, perhaps the succinctest uh, summary of the historical account of the first Christmas. Matthew Chapter 1, verses 18 18- For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. Those words summarize Christmas, don't they? She will bear a son. Remember, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why is he named Jesus? Because he will save his people. The name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. He's Jesus because he is Yahweh God who saves his people from their sins. Verse 22 says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And he quotes from Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's who Christ is. That's what Christmas is about. God becoming one of us, to be with us to, as we'll see later, deliver us. Verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So there's the first Christmas story according to Matthew chapter 1. You can go back to Galatians now. John gives us the divine perspective. John chapter 1, there's no baby, there's no manger, there's no... Uh, shepherds there's no joseph there's no mary how can you have christmas without all of that because john kind of pulls back the curtain of eternity he says in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god verse 14 the word became flesh god became a man that's what christmas is all about this is the good news god became a human being he had to be god Because the only one who had the infinite worth and value to pay an infinite penalty and bear infinite wrath and satisfy infinite justice is the infinite God. But he had to be a man because the only one who could be a perfect substitute in the place of man is a man, and thus Jesus is. He is fully God, fully man, the perfect Redeemer and Savior of his people. God became a man, and he did it by being born of a woman. But not only was he born of a woman... The end of verse 4 has this He was also born under the law. He was born under the law. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that, like all human beings, since Jesus became a man, he was in the plan and providence of God bound to obey the law of God. He was bound to obey the law. Like all men, he was bound to obey the moral law. And like all Jews, he was bound to obey and observe the ceremonial law that he would himself fulfill. And in doing so, he would not do it just for himself. He would do it for us. His obedience was substitutionary obedience, vicarious obedience. He did it in the place of his people. He lived for us. He died for us. He is our substitute. Our substitute. So he kept the law. And we know he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 17? I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? <clears throat> fulfill it. He came to fulfill it, and he did it. He fulfilled the ceremonial law because he's the one that it all foreshadowed. He's the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He fulfilled the moral law because he kept it perfectly. And as we'll see again in a minute, he fulfilled the uh, the legal demands of that law because he bore its penalty. Jesus fulfilled the law. Matthew chapter 3. 3 verse 15 says, He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled all righteousness. What's that mean? It means that he perfectly obeyed the righteous demands of the law so as to provide us with his own perfect righteousness. His own perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is what's so glorious about Christmas. God Entered into the world as a human being. Bound to obey the law. And he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. All throughout scripture, there's this messianic expectation. Messianic expectation. God promises the seed. And then you get, you get to Noah. You think maybe Noah's the guy. But Noah falls. Then you get, you get to David. Maybe, maybe David's the guy. David falls all throughout the Old Testament. All of these men, they fall. No matter how great they seemingly were, they fall. But this man comes. He goes into the, into the desert, and he does what the first Adam couldn't do. The first Adam's in a perfect garden. He's tempted, and he, he falls. The second Adam is in a wilderness, starving and hungry, and he obeys the law of God. He is more than our example. He is our champion and our deliverer. So that's the great reality. He kept the law so that his righteousness becomes our righteousness, the great exchange. So that's the message of Christmas. That's the message. Jesus came. He came into the world. He was born of a virgin. He was fully God and fully man, and he kept the law perfectly for us. But what is the purpose of all of that? What is the purpose? Why? Why Christmas? Why the incarnation? Why the birth of Christ? Why did Jesus come into the world? You see, if all you know is that Jesus was in a manger, you miss it. You can't separate the manger from the cross you can't separate the incarnation from salvation. You cannot separate the birth of Christ from the death of Christ because that was the end toward which all of it was moving. So let's think about the purpose. Look at at verse 5. God did all of this. God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's the reason for Christmas. Salvation, redemption, deliverance. The baby in the manger was a baby in the manger so that he could be a man that would go to a cross. He came from heaven to earth to bring us from earth to heaven. He's the Savior, but he was born that he might die. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15 puts it this way. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the purpose. He was not just an example. He was not just a murderer. He was not just a good preacher, a noble man. He was a substitute who would save his people. And if you miss that, you miss Christmas. You miss it. Your nativity scenes are irrelevant if you miss the cross. He came into the world so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's the purpose, redemption. What does it mean to redeem, by the way? What does it mean? It means to buy back, to buy out from, Uh, To release by the payment of a price, the payment of a ransom. It's the word that was used in the ancient slave market. How do you free a slave? You pay a price. You pay a price. And you redeem him and you liberate him. That's what Jesus has done. Full redemption. He's paid the price. He's purchased us. He's purchased us. What's the price? What did he pay? What did he give to pay the price? His own blood. His own life. It's the death of Christ that was the price that was paid. Peter says you're not redeemed from your feudal way of life by perishable things like silver and gold, but by the blood of a precious unblemished lamb, the blood of Christ. That was the price that was paid. Salvation comes freely to us, doesn't it? We don't work to earn it. We don't do good deeds to earn it. We don't observe ceremonies and rituals to earn it. We don't do any of that. We get it freely. But it's free to us, but it cost Christ. Cost Christ. Cost God. You think of Christmas, many of us will go to our homes and on Christmas Eve or Christmas, you'll open up your Christmas presents and you're getting it freely, right? When you open a present, did you buy it? If you're my wife, then you probably did. You know, I send my wife, baby, whatever you want, wrap it up, we'll unwrap it on Christmas. But ordinarily, if you're outside of the terry house, you don't buy your own gifts. You get them freely. But though you get them freely, someone bought them. That's the way it works with salvation. It comes freely to you by faith. Christ bought it. He purchased it on the cross. That's why in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the price that was paid. Now, who is it that he came to redeem? Who is it that he came to redeem? Verse 5 says this, those who were under the law. He came to redeem those who were under the law. Who's that? Who's under the law? Well, naturally, everyone is under the law. Everyone. Let me show you this. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. In other words, the law can only speak with authority to those under its jurisdiction, right? I'm not bound to obey the law of Mexico. I'm in America. I don't have to obey that law. I've got to obey American law. The law is only binding on you if you're under its authority and jurisdiction. But who's that? Who's that? Verse 19, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Who's under the law? Every mouth, the whole world, everyone is under the law naturally, naturally. That's why verse 20 adds, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight because all flesh is naturally under the law. And as we know, we're therefore condemned by that law. God established a covenant in the garden with Adam. Some call it the Adamic administration or the Adamic covenant, the covenant of works, covenant of law. It's a covenant that God made with Adam and the human race in him, and he was bound to observe God's law, summarized for him in that one commandment of not eating eating off the tree. Adam violated that covenant. We sinned in him, and we continue to daily break that covenant, daily violate that law, and therefore we place ourselves under curse. Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10. To be under this law is to be under a curse. It doesn't sound pretty. It doesn't make for good motivational sermons. But the reality is this. Every human being born into the world is born under a curse. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Who's under the law? Everyone. And anyone who trusts in the law, anyone who's trusting in himself, anyone who's not trusting in Christ, is of the works of the law and is condemned by it. So as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. The law demands perfection from you. The law demands perfect obedience. God is so perfect, so holy, so righteous, so just, he cannot accept anything less, lest he compromise his own justice. The law demands perfection. We've all broken it. We've broken it in Adam. We've broken it by our actual sins, our ongoing rebellion, and therefore we're all condemned by it. We're all naturally under condemnation, under a curse, under the wrath of God. If we ended there, it would be bad, wouldn't it? Christmas wouldn't sound so great. But verse 13 gives us the good news. Look at Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ redeemed us. He bought us back. He purchased us. He paid the price. Because he became the curse. That's what it's about. That's why he was born in the manger, so that he would bear the curse. The wrath of God that you deserve, that I deserve, that everyone deserves for their sins against the holy God, fell upon Jesus. Our iniquity, legally accredited, imputed, transferred to Christ's account, he bore the wrath, he bore the judgment, and we go free because of his sufferings. All of those in Christ, the people of God, the elect of God, those who trust the Savior, are delivered from that curse. He's the only one that could do it. The only one fitting to satisfy divine justice was the one born at Christmas, the one who died at Calvary, the one who rose again, and the one who sets his people free. All because of his work on the cross. He paid the fine, he paid the penalty, he paid the price, so God's people are delivered from the curse of the law. That's the purpose of Christmas. That's what we celebrate. Is that what you think about when you think about Christmas? Do you think about delivered from God's wrath? Because that's what Christmas is about. Do you think about saved from sin and judgment? That's what Christmas is about. You can't separate Christmas from the work on the cross. That's what should come to our minds. The glory of Jesus. The glory of the gospel. Friends, no magical flying reindeer, no guy in a red suit, no amount of material presents. None of that could ever compare to what Christmas is really about. Why would we substitute such shallow realities, such shallow mythologies for glorious realities? Why would we do that? We have the glory of Christmas for us in Christ. How do we respond to this message? What's our application to this? We believe it. We believe it. We believe in Christ. We trust in Christ. We worship Christ. We adore Christ. We magnify Him. We tell the world about Him. We want the world to know about Christ. We respond the way Mary did in Luke chapter 1. By the way, have you ever heard that song, Mary? Did you know? Yes, she knew. She knew. (laughs) She knew. Listen to how she responds to the good news of her giving birth to the Savior in Luke 1. She said, My soul exalts the Lord... And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. That's how we respond. We exalt God, praise God that he sent a Savior, a Messiah who would deliver us. We respond like the angels in Luke chapter 2. Listen to their response. The angel said to them, to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's it. That's how we respond. Glory to God for Christmas. Glory to God for the Savior. Glory to God for the incarnation and birth of Christ. He was born friends, that he might go to the cross and save us from our sins. And he did all of this. The end of verse 5 here says that we might receive the adoption as sons, that we might become children of God. And we're going to talk about that in detail in a few weeks in 1 John. But that's the good news of Christmas. That's the glory of Christmas. It's impossible to separate the nativity scene from the scene of a bloody horrific death on a tree. It's impossible to separate the birth from the death. The gospel is what Christmas is all about. Is that for you? Is that true for you? Have you come to believe in Christ as Savior and Lord? Have you believed the good news of Christmas? Have you trusted in the Savior, submitting to His Lordship by repentant faith? Because friends, if not, this baby in a manger is going to be the executioner this baby in a manger is the one who's going to dash his enemies to pieces. He's the one who's going to be dipped in the blood of his enemies and the one who's going to bring the enemies of God to bow before him and confess him as Lord. This is the same Jesus, the biblical Jesus, and all who trusted him by faith find him to be a perfect and sufficient Savior. Have you believed that good news of Christmas? If not, my plea to you today is that you would bow your knee to Christ and receive the greatest gift you could ever receive, the gift of salvation in and by the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us who have received that, for us who have believed in him, may we keep him central, not just on December 25th, not just in December, but every day of every week of every year forever, because he is our life. He's what it's all about. We want to worship him and love him and adore him every day, but especially now. There's no reason... To not think about the glory of Christ now, it should be central. One way to do that, by the way, just to give you an application, simple application. As you go home with your families, and you open your presents, and you watch your movies, and as you eat your nice food, and go through all the festivities, as you do all of that, I would recommend that you do family worship. I think you should do that every day, but on December 24th and 25th, do family worship together. Read the Christmas story, even if you don't have children, if you're a married couple, you're still a family. Read the Christmas story together and think about the glory of Christmas. Keep Christ central and tell the world about Him. Friends, that's the glory of Christmas. That's the meaning. That's the purpose. Christ came into the world to save sinners for the glory of God. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity, its Validity, veracity, glory, truth. We're amazed as we look into the glory of Scripture and see the glory of Christ and think of the glory of Christmas. It's just amazing to us. Lord, if we think we're good people, you just make mistakes, sin is oopsie-daisy, then we'll come to the conclusion that Christmas isn't really all that magnificent. Perhaps we have to substitute the real glory of Christmas for for myths and and other things because we don't really understand the gospel. Often we don't realize how holy you are, how depraved and sinful we are. And therefore we don't see how beautiful the cross is. But I pray that today our hearts and our minds will be directed toward the cross, toward the Christ, toward the Savior. And our love for him would grow, our affections for him would be stirred, and our obedience to him would become ever greater. So be with us, accept our worship. For the name and glory of Christ we pray. Amen.